Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, the last episode for 2019, we'll be discussing the Australian Election Study. My guest today is Jill Shepherd. Jill is a lecturer in politics at the Australian National University and a co-investigator in the Australian Election Study with a focus on the survey methods of the study. Hello, Jill. G'day, Ben. So the Australian Election Study, it's the most long-standing election study in Australia with the most comprehensive list of questions, which can be compared over a long time period. We've been doing it kind of every election since 1987. So the AES publishes data on what issues concern voters and what has influenced how they vote, be it the popularity of the party leaders, the salience of various issues, or the interactions with the political party campaigns. Firstly, Jill, can you tell our audience a little bit about how the AES process works? We run the election study after each election. Basically, as soon as the results are in on the Sunday or the, the Saturday night, we can start preparing the letters to go out. We draw a sample of about 6,000 Australians it's from a nationally representative um, what we call a sampling frame. Basically, when you run a survey like this, you need a list of everyone in the country. Um, and it feels intuitively like that should exist, like we do the census, you know, the, the government knows who we are. Unfortunately, there's no really good uh, comprehensive list of everyone over the age of 18 that includes both names, addresses, and, you know, sort of even better, something about us. Like if we knew that, you know, whether we're male or female, all of this would really help with our sampling. So what we use at the moment is what's called the geocoded national address frame. It's a list of every registered address in the country. So it's not a, a list of people, it's a list of places. Right. So we don't have names attached to it. Um, this is a real problem for, for surveying people because when you get a letter from the AES in your letterbox, it just says, Dear Lynham resident or dear Sydney resident, it doesn't actually say, dear, you know, Ms. Shepherd, uh, will you please complete this survey? So it's been a real um, challenge for us to try to work out the best way of actually contacting people. Until before, uh, well, about 2013, we had regular access to the Australian electoral roll. And that was great because it's comprehensive. It's really up to date. You know that everyone on your sampling frame is enrolled to vote, is over the age of 18, is an Australian citizen, all of the things that we were looking for. Recently, the Electoral Commission's become a lot more risk averse, um, completely understandably. We could access the electoral roll, but it would take us months and months of negotiation with the with the Electoral Commission and, the, and Tom Rogers, the commissioner. Um, so we've chosen to go down this path. As I say, the problem with um, with the address frame that we have at the moment is that we don't have names, but on the other hand, we have more addresses than uh, people actually live at. So when we talk about the kinds of, you know, best practice for survey methodology, one is that we have population coverage, that everyone in the population has an equal opportunity to be selected in the sample. We have that and a little bit more in the AES. And so that's one bonus. But, you know, all, all of these decisions are trade-off and we're just trying to minimise the bias in the eventual sample. So your goal is to only survey voters, right? So if you're getting people who are under 18 or who are not citizens, I guess maybe you're, you might be interested in people who could vote but, don't, but choose not to? We've started including um, non-citizens. We ask them early in the survey if they are non-citizens. And so a lot of the questions become redundant. We're not actively trying to screen them out. We're also trying to really get at, and this is a tough part of the population, people who are eligible either to enrol or to vote, but who choose not to. Um, these numbers are declining because of di um, direct electoral enrolment updates. So that's kind of, um, you know, what, while I think direct enrolment, you know, getting people onto the electoral roll um, 
almost whether they like it or not, has been really good for Australian democracy. It's a bit of a pain for us because we we can't target these people who um, would otherwise, you know, but for this um, policy at the moment would otherwise not vote or not enrol because they're the interesting ones, right? The people who turn up, the, the problem with any survey, Ben, is that it's you people like you and me who answer them, right? People who turn up, who are involved in parties, who are interested in politics. And I don't really care what we think. We're kind of boring, right? I always think about, you know, my sister's a personal trainer, could give us stuff about politics. She tunes in once every three years to vote. She's the person we want on our survey. Well, I could imagine that even if you take the data and you were to weight it, and I'll ask you in a second about weighting, but even if you were to weight it by, say, political party or by age, you might be capturing uh, the kinds of person who fills out a survey who is a young liberal is not necessarily representative of all people, young people who vote liberal, right? Like, and um, I mean, that I think that was probably was a big problem with the polling in the marriage survey because the marriage survey didn't have a way to calibrate its data compared to previous previous votes. And so you have that problem where you get voters who, yeah, again, want to fill out a survey. I mean, how, how many questions are in the survey? Uh, okay, so we're up around 200 questions at yeah. the moment. It's long. So it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. I just said about a minute ago that it's people like you or me who would fill out this survey. You know, on the other hand, I'm a single parent who's, you know, working a pretty time-consuming job. I don't know that I could be bothered filling out the survey. So we have to try to make it, A, interesting, and uh, B, worth a while. So um, to get at B, lately we've been um, providing incentives. This is really fraught, and whenever I bring this up in a you know a room full of people who don't run surveys or don't really understand survey methods, um, I get absolutely berated. Like, why are you paying people? That's going to distort your sample. Um, it does distort our sample. People who will fill in a survey for twenty dollars. Um, so our current incentive structure is we provide a five dollar gift card with the initial recruitment letter. So you open the letter, you get a five dollar Colesmar card, which is you know great. That's like a you know. Yep, that grabs your attention. It's, you know, four litres of milk at Coles. The idea is that it grabs their attention. It's a sign of goodwill. Then on completion, we sent out a $20 Coles My gift card. $20 is kind of um, a bit of a sweet spot. Usually we offer $10 to, um, to complete surveys in Australia. We thought for this because, you know, it's a, it's a kind of seminal survey. We wanted it to be um, a serious thing. Um, so we, we offered $20. Uh, if you offer any more than that, we know this from international studies and experiments and things, people get sus. They say, why are you giving me $50 to run a survey? Like that, It's too much money and, and it raises um, suspicions. So we settled on $20. It seemed to work really well. And that's, you know, technically, as we tell our ethics committee, um, that's reimbursement for their time. But it's not really that. I mean, it's a goodwill gesture and, and that is the way that surveys are, are heading around the world. And I would guess that the incentive probably works better on people who are who are less well off, who are, you know, are more in need of the money, but also probably people who possibly are underemployed, right? Like if you are if you are an extremely busy person, even if you don't have a great deal of money, it may still be be a bit hard. But I would guess all those sorts of groups are the kinds of people that uh, if you didn't have an incentive, would probably be underrepresented. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly, I mean, it's not, the effects of the $20 incentive aren't distributed homogeneously across the, the sample. Um, they are much more effective among people on lower incomes, people with less education. The The real target demo that we're always trying to get is, um, we always think about like 18-year-old boys, 
because they do not answer surveys. Can we convince an 18-year-old boy that we will pay half of a case of beer? It makes me think of the marriage survey where the research showed that uh, young men were actually really pro-marriage equality, but they were really uncommitted to voting. Young women, young women were, they were sweet, you know, but the young men were the ones that they, it wasn't that they were homophobes, it wasn't that they were opposed or anything or had any big political objection, but it was just like they were, they needed convincing, they needed someone to nudge them to get them to vote. And I would imagine the same is true for for surveys, which don't even have at least the motivation of, um, well, if you if you vote in this particular way, you might achieve this particular outcome for yourself or for your friends. Yeah, for surveys, there's there's no direct payoff. When we when we submit our ethics our ethics forms for um, to get approval to run these surveys, we have to say what is the benefit to the respondent, and we always come up with some sort of mealy mouthed, um, you know, and it's not it's not lying, but you know, we have to kind of bump up the fact that. It enhances our, you know, our societal understanding of of politics and why people vote the way they do. There's no direct benefit, not in the way that that there's even the the good feeling of having voted. And we know that, um, you know, voting for a lot of people produces a kind of endorphin rush. And there's a sense that afterwards you are more satisfied with your, you know, with your democratic system because you've participated in it. We we can't really offer that in a survey. Um, the data are for us, you know, are for us and for researchers. Uh, I could talk about the survey process for so long. We make really tough decisions. I think one criticism that the election study gets is that we don't innovate, and that's a completely legitimate charge. In response to that, I say that a lot of what we do is behind the scenes. It is it is in how we uh, recruit people to participate in the survey. It's how we incentivize them, and you know we we briefly sort of touched on waiting, but. We are developing and employing much more um, sophisticated post-stratification. So what we do with the data, um, I know it, it's what pollsters call their secret source. Um, for us, it's not secret. You know, we're very explicit about the fact that we weight the data on a bunch of different factors. Traditionally, you know, that's been age, gender, education, location. Um, in this election study, for instance, we weighted to uh, home ownership because we could see in the initial results that uh, that issues like home ownership were, first of all, uh, home ownership in the sample was much different from the population and that it seemed to be having a substantive effect on a lot of our variables of interest like vote choice, yeah, like satisfaction, like trust. I wonder if that's always been the case or if that is really a new thing that's developed as our housing market has gotten a bit out of control that, you know, maybe once upon a time the poorest of the poor didn't own their homes and the young tended not to own, right? If you were very young, you you moved out of home, you moved into a rental, you lived there for a few years, you saved up your deposit, you got married, you you bought your house. Uh, I, I mean, I'm thinking 1950s here, a long way back. But um, I do wonder if, like, that does appear to have, I mean, it's definitely changed now that there are people who are not in poverty but are basically locked into renting possibly for life um, and I mean, it is one of the findings in the survey, which I have noted, is that there is a tremendous difference between those who rent and those who own their home. Yeah, I mean, I think home ownership used to be a factor of the life cycle, right? You know, it's just, are you young? You're renting or, you know, or you're living at home and then you own a home, you know, from 30 on. It seems to be becoming much more structural. Like, I'm not a demographer, but, you know, so I couldn't tell you at length, but um, it, it looks in our data like it's becoming much more a kind of class um, and economic uh, based factor 
And so these are the things that we have to account for when we think about the kinds of people who respond and the kinds of people who don't respond to our survey. Even something as kind of ostensibly trivial as if you're a renter and you get mail sent to you, you know, you might be more suspicious about it. You might think, who the hell is this? It's probably for the uh, for the homeowner, you know, for the landlord, not necessarily for me, especially when we don't have a name attached to the address. So I think at every point along the process for renters, um, vis-a-vis homeowners, where we're introducing potential uh, bias in the sample. And this is the kind of stuff that we're trying to account for. It wasn't an issue for you guys in this case, because you weren't contacting individual people. But it's certainly a case when whenever you're contacting people with a specific name attached, that renters' addresses change much more often. And, you know, their electoral roll enrollment may be out of date. And again, with the marriage survey, that that was an issue that renters were more likely to have moved and not updated their enrollment, particularly if they hadn't moved very far, but they'd moved far enough that they weren't going to get mail from their old address. Young people drop off the electoral roll at much higher rates than any other part of the population because they move around. If you think about university students, um, say at the ANU, you know, they live in college for a year, then their their college accommodation's not guaranteed. So they move out to their first share house. They realise they can't live with those friends. They move into a, a smaller share house. And this goes on for you know uh, most of their 20s yeah so it's worth mentioning what those numbers actually are so for homeowners the coalition is according to the aes got 50 percent of the vote this is primary vote and they got 27 amongst renters so that's a 23 point gap for the coalition for labor they did eight points better with renters than homeowners which kind of makes sense that labor's in that kind of position where they kind of get a bit of both and the greens it's it's tremendous the gap for the greens so they uh, I think um, so the Greens polled 6% amongst homeowners and 20% amongst renters. So the Greens, according to these figures, the Liberal Party is closer to the Greens than they are to Labor in terms of their vote amongst renting voters. That's huge. Yeah, which which I find really, really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously some of that is, you know, is almost certainly down to the policy factors at this election. Um but I'm always wary about overstating the effect of policy because most of us most of us tune out, you know, almost half of us voted early at this election. Not a lot of us follow the election very, very closely. And and the election study, as much as anything, um, overestimates the extent to which we care about the election because the same kinds of people who respond to the survey are the same kind of people who uh, do pay attention to the election. A lot of this, again, is structural. You know, these are young people who... Uh, A, don't particularly see any difference between Labor and Liberal, particularly on the issues that are closest to them, like climate change. Um, They're not worried about uh, wealth and asset-related policies because they don't have them. I think for particularly people um, between 30 and 40, we see the lowest rates of trust, um, trust in the political parties, trust in in the government to do the right thing, um, and the lowest rates of satisfaction with democracy. These are people who are not checking out of democracy, but they're pretty pissed off with the system at at the moment. And I think that's particularly the actors, the policies, the parties. They can't feel like they're particularly, you know, they don't feel like they want to be engaged and that's entirely reasonable. Um, And so when we see them opting for minor parties and, you know, whether we still call the Greens, I guess a minor party is debatable, but certainly not not a party that is going to form government, you know, we see some fairly rational behaviour. One of the great benefits of the AES is that you have asked not all the same questions, but a lot of the same questions have been asked consistently for decades, right? For basically my entire lifetime, like I was born one year before 
that first kind of consistent AES was published in 1987. Um, and so like you mentioned questions about disillusionment with democracy, how satisfied people are with democracy, how much they trust the government. You can see a long-term trend uh, through these questions. And there is a particular report that the AES has published, which specifically it's just graphs showing the trends from in some cases as far back as 1987 for each question to show how things have changed. And in the case of the democracy question, one thing I noticed about the, the questions about how much people believe in democracy and, and things like that was the support is kind of at an all-time low, or at least as low as it's been since the 70s. Um, but uh, uh, but it, it kind of stabilised in 2016. It hasn't really gotten worse for most of those questions. It's sort of it's hit a low plateau and sort of stayed there in 2019. Yeah, I think that's right. We we can really panic about this stuff. Um, if you take the raw numbers um, at face value, you know, in any sort of cross section, if I looked at this um, completely blind to pre-2019 results, I might go, you know, I might respond that the world is falling apart and, you know, we're all ruined. When we look at the long-term trend, um, you know, yeah, it is in decline. It has plateaued since 2016. You know, that's only been two data points, so we'll see what happens next. Um, but a lot of the a lot of this stuff is um, is an obvious reaction to events. Um, you know, we see after 2007, for instance, the people that the percentage of Australians who believe that people in government can be trusted to do the right thing just falls through the floor. And some of this is, you know, getting over the rud kind of honeymoon for sure. But also we swapped leaders a hell of a lot during that period. Um, the kind of the, the climate change um, consensus fell apart. You know, basic policy issues, the important policy issues fell off the table. So, yeah, if, if respondents are saying, I don't feel great about our democratic system post-2007, I said, well, that's okay. Like, I kind of understand that. I don't think this is a structural problem. I don't think this is Australians turning towards authoritarianism or autocracy. We do ask questions in other surveys that ask things like, you know, is it okay for leaders to bypass parliament, um, you know, when they need to get things done? And people say for sure. And I always want to ask, okay, so, and we, we don't because we can't necessarily go back to them, but okay, on what issues? Is it okay to bypass the parliament to act on climate change? I mean, I would probably say yes, and, and I'm as committed to democracy as anyone. You know, it, it's a very undemocratic answer to a very pertinent and pressing problem. So um, I think what the trends data does so well is help to contextualise a lot of these responses. It When we look back, we can see obvious reactions to uh, different um you know, to different phenomena in Australian politics. And I've got pretty good faith in Australian voters that they they appreciate what's good about the country and they can see what's bad and, and they, they let us know. And I think that's good, right? Without these sort of trend data, without the long-term series, um, we wouldn't know to be worried. We wouldn't know that that trust is particularly low at the moment. So, yeah, we do have that benefit. There was a question asked about, like, people's attitude towards the leadership change before the last election and you know we've now had four elections where you've been able to ask that question about people's attitude towards the change of prime minister and none of them have been particularly popular but this was an unpopular 
uh, leadership change, even though Scott Morrison is relatively popular in terms of major party leaders in the last decade? Yeah, look, I think what's really interesting about the attitudes towards those leadership changes is that they're not consistent. Um, we've been, and and I find this so interesting, Australians have kind of been supportive of leadership of leadership changes between elections when they've you know, when the victor has been someone that they preferred. So it's not necessarily the process that we hate, it's the outcome, which again kind of makes total sense. It's not that we're worried about, not that we're worried that the, the system isn't working for us, it's that we just want the parties to put up the most popular leader. Um, we didn't really approve of the, the switch from Turnbull to Morrison, which I find really interesting because Turnbull wasn't a particularly popular uh, leader either as Prime Minister or, you know, kind of as the the shadow, uh, I guess, Prime Minister after his um, defeat by Morrison. But we ended up quite liking Morrison. And I think, you know, there was a lot of uh, fairly, you know, um, hand-wavy conventional wisdom that he ran such a great campaign, you know, that um, he really solved the problem for the Liberal Party uh, as soon as the election was called. And I find all that reporting usually really unpalatable and, you know, just a bit of bullshit, really. But um, I think there's evidence here that he probably did campaign really well and he probably won people over, particularly on the conservative side who preferred Turnbull, really dreaded Morrison initially, but ended up quite happy with how he um, played the campaign with the kind of policies that uh, he proposed to the extent that he just continued the the Labor the Liberal Party's agenda um, broadly, um, and I think that's really interesting. And I think Morrison's subsequent shift. I mean, I and I don't know if I'm buying into kind of um, hand wavy media narrative now, but I think certainly since the election, Morrison has looked more comfortable being more conservative, and I wonder if that um, is maybe a little bit of hubris on his part that. And this will come back to bite him. Everyone was happy when he was Turnbull light. One of the things that I saw that jumped out at me was that, uh, like, the policy differences between the parties appear to have accelerated this election. That people were asked how much difference they saw between, I, I, I don't know if it's explicitly said or implicitly, kind of the major parties between the coalition and Labor. And it seemed like the differences between them, people perceived those differences as being much greater than they had in the past, or a lot more people perceived them as being significant. And we also have a lot of polling to suggest that there was kind of an uptick in uh, concern both about kind of taxation and economy issues on one side and also environment and global warming. I've, I don't know if this has been made explicit anywhere, but I sort of interpreted that as those were two different groups of people who decided to care more about those two different clusters of issues. But um what what is that? What's your take on that in terms of what that meant? In terms of what that meant for the election? Yeah, look, I think um, our take certainly, as the the researchers on the study, is that um, this election saw a return to each party playing into its own wheelhouse. With the Labor Party talking about inequality, talking about issues in the environment, climate change, you know, how we will sort of, um, I guess, steer the ship going forward in, in an equitable and sort of pro environmental way. Um, the Liberal Party returning to its roots on economic management, on um, returning the benefits of uh, a life full of, you know, paying taxes to uh, older Australians. It's all it's all kind of ground zero for both of the major parties. I think in 2016 we saw probably the, the kind of low point in Australians seeing a difference between the parties. 
most Australians saw almost zero difference between the parties. And really interestingly, um, most Australians thought that the government was having no effect on the economy. So if we think about all of the campaigns, you know, that I can remember in, in my history, you know, and I'm only a couple of years older than you, but since about 1993, I can remember elections and they've all broadly been fought around issues of, of economic management, whether it's keeping interest rates low, whether it's um, even, um, say, the 2001 election, when you're talking about who you can trust, you know, to, to look after our borders, parlayed into questions of economic trust. And, and this has sort of been the, you know, the really base idea on which, on which Australian politics has fought. You know, in that way, we're no different to any other Western liberal democracy. And that was starting to unravel, I think, um, as we were looking more towards global trends, I think there was a sense that any Australian government can do only, you know, can only act around the margins on domestic uh, economic policy issues. That seems to have reverted, I think, in this election. We do seem a lot more confident with the Coalition on Economic Management and we seem a lot more confident with Labor on um, issues of, of equity and environmental protection. But as long as most of us as voters are still uh, primarily concerned with economic management, with, you know, with job security, with real wage growth, with all of these things, we're still going to prefer the coalition. So in a way, it's, it's a reversion to um, the kind of informational shortcuts to what we might call heuristics if we're being, you know, academic bankers. Um, you know, the, when we think about the coalition, we think economic management. You know, we use these sort of shortcut connections in our brain. It's almost surprising because we, we'd been expecting that um, voters, as we became much more highly educated, much more cynical, much less um, rusted on partisan, that we, we would be more cynical about these um these kind of brain connections that we're making, but we seem to be reverting to them. So that's really interesting as well. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Jill, for joining me. Always a pleasure, Ben. So this is the last episode of the Tally Room Podcast for 2019. I'll be back in 2020 covering a number of elections across Australia, starting with the Queensland Council elections in March. I'm also planning thorough coverage of the Northern Territory election in August, the New South Wales Council elections in September, and the ACT and Queensland elections in October. Some of these elections don't get as much coverage as the big elections we saw in 2018 and 2019, but I think they're still important, and I think the analysis I'll be providing will be very useful in illuminating these elections. So if you also think it's useful, I hope you'll consider donating to support the Tally Room. You can do so at www.patreon.com slash tallyroom. Thank you. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.